welcome back for another episode of Gems and Jokes with me, Ariel Tivon of Tivon Fine Jewelry. So, as always, I'm going to try and bring you an insight and some interesting behind-the-scenes information and education about the world of gems and jewelry. I try and do it in the most informal way possible, mainly because I'm lazy and I don't really like in-depth research. I'm not a professor and I'm not running a jewelry course. I just prefer talking to people and learning firsthand from their stories and experiences about what's happening in today's industry. Today, once again, I've managed to rope in someone to help me delve into the world of gemstones, specifically sapphires and rubies. To do that, I've brought in a friend whose family have been dealing in gemstones for generations. His name is Samir and today he's coming to us live from Thailand. Samir and I met years ago when we were neighbours at a trade exhibition in Hong Kong. We've remained friends and colleagues and I think he shares just about the right amount of passion for gems that I do to make him the perfect person for the show. Now, for those not in the know, rubies and sapphires have managed to hold top spot for collectability and adoration for hundreds of years, along with diamonds and emeralds. In terms of wear and tear, their hardness and durability make them ideal. That isn't a challenge, by the way. But it's their richness of color that make anyone who looks at them simply melt and fall in love. Also, their rarity in true gem form makes people literally part with millions in some cases just to get a hold of them. There is so much to discuss. So let's get straight into it with our guest. Hey, Samir. Thanks for agreeing to come on the podcast. Really appreciate uh, you helping me to embarrass myself less by having an actual proper expert on the subject come in today thanks for coming on oh it's a pleasure to be here and i'll do anything i can do to help you'll get less embarrassed yeah it's a lot of work so you got your work cut out for you i want to note it yeah i think you'll agree i think this podcast is actually better than the united nations because we bring on literally anybody from around the world it doesn't matter religion creed color whatever it's all in the name of bringing people together and then getting them to do a deal and squeeze the laugh out of each other to get the best price. I think that's really, if that's not utopia, if that's not bringing people together, I don't know what is. When you first told me about it, I mean, when I first saw it on social media, I just dropped everything like a hot potato. And the first thing I did was listen to your, to your podcast. And I think it was fantastic. It's a brilliant idea. Thank you for saying so. Obviously, you don't have a very hectic schedule that you dropped everything to listen to me, but I appreciate the nice <laughs> words anyway. Thank you. It's a great idea having discussions, bring a little bit of education to people. And I also wanted noted, I mean, what we bring to the table is a lot. If you consider how many Indians and Jewish people in this industry, I think if it wasn't up to us, all the prices would be like 10 times what they are regularly. So we, we should actually get like a UN economics prize or something for bringing down worldwide <laughs> prices on gemstones. Well, Nobel Prize for uh, driving price up. <laughs> well, uh, no, we're generally, hold on a second. If you bring an Indian and a Jewish guy into a negotiation, prices don't go up, prices go down. Well, it depends on what, what side of the table you're on. If you're buying, prices go down, but if you're selling, prices are always up. Well, it's like I've always told you, on my calculator, there's only a minus and a divide sign. There's never a plus or a multiplication. So I don't know what calculator you guys are working on. I know what I'm working on. Well, there's a Chinese abacus and there's a Jewish calculator. <laughs> yeah, well, between, and then the Indians come in the middle and all hell breaks loose. But listen, thank, thank God at least we're there to, to bring some good judgment to it. Now, listen, hey, you got to fight the Indians. We invented the number zero. <laughs> 
<laughs> I think you're borrowing that from somebody that we'll talk about, but there's always less than zero, which is what I always demand. But somehow we always started, we, for. we always started zero. That's what we strive for, below zero. <laughs> and that's what we get accomplished, I think, most of the time is zero. Now, listen, before we get into the topic of rubies and sapphires, I just want to give our listeners some background as to who you are, how we met. And if I'm not mistaken, we actually met at an exhibition several years ago. Uh, we were neighbors. Our booths were sort of adjoining one another. I remember looking over at your booth and seeing the most incredible array of sapphires and rubies. And I think that's what sort of led me to start talking to you. But actually what ensued is a relentless discussion of stand-up comedy, a joint love for Russell Peters, an amazing comedian, Indian comedian from Canada, and everything to do but to discuss gemstones. Absolutely. That's exactly how it went down. <laughs> and I think since then, I think between you and I, definitely we've kept Mark Zuckerberg's business afloat by sending endless amounts of WhatsApps jokes to each other. And once in a while, let's call it a business related WhatsApp. We'll just, we'll just leave it at that. But uh, definitely, I think we got on like a house on fire from the beginning and it's been a good relationship. So going back to the exhibition and again, looking at your booth and just seeing the most incredible rubies and sapphires being sold. I think one of the things I noted was yours is a family business, much like mine. Just give us a little bit of background information about your family, about how you guys got in, into the gemstone business. What's the whole background? So originally, my family's from India. It's a town called Kambay in Gujarat, which is on the west coast of India, above Bombay, Maharashtra state. And that town originally was known for being the best gemstone cutting center in the world in the 50s and 60s. So those guys are the ones who actually pioneered cutting very, very small melee sizes in uh, ruby and sapphire. Sorry, for those also, who don't know, when you say melee sizes, what does melee sizes refer to? Like one millimeter, one and a half millimeter, small rounds, diamond cuts that you often get seen set in uh, have a set jewelry right. bands, accent stones and things like that right so how so, did your family enter the the whole scene it being a gem cutting town our family background like if we go down to my ancestors we have always been in touch with uh, the gem and jewelry industry somehow we've always floated in and out at one point they were trading gold we were doing financing. We had a breakaway with my grandfather who got into the Indian sweets business. But then, of course, my father and my uncle, my dad's older brother, uh, they obviously had an affinity for gemstones. And that's how they got into initially the rough trading business, rough rubies and sapphires. But trying to find uh, an alternative source, that's how they ventured out into Thailand mm -hmm. and Burma back in early to mid 60s, they would bring back the rough to India to sell. But what happened was during the travels, they somehow ended up staying back more in Thailand and saw a much larger opportunity for doing cut stones and uh, even trying to sell product to different markets around the world like uh, New York, Hong Kong, London, Beirut back in the day. So then my father actually ventured he actually traveled to Hong Kong from Bangkok in 1967 for the first time. Uh, as soon as he went there and he's, he basically set up shop, he established a company in 69 
yeah, that's that's pretty much how it uh, all started. So it had nothing to do with the food in Thailand. The fact that it's no, all... not at the time, no. <laughs> but it helped. It, it helped. was all about the money. It was yeah, all about the all money. Follow the money. They always say in all these documentaries, follow the money. Well, now we know what the great tradition is. And tell me, you know, you've mentioned now your family history and how your father and uncle and so on came into it. Do you find, I'm always fascinated by the industry's ability to keeping things in the family. Do you think from your perspective, especially from an Indian perspective, is this a cultural thing? Is there, do you feel sometimes that there's a pressure to come in and take over a family business? I wouldn't say it's an Indian thing, but it's generally there in all cultures around the world who have ancestral heritage, who have uh, intergenerational businesses. You see that a lot in the UK. You see a lot, a lot of that in the Middle East. You see a lot of that, obviously, in uh, India. You know, you'll have second, third, fourth, fifth generation companies. I mean, we are like the third generation in the company, myself and my, my older brother. So I think it's, you could say it's sort of like a sentimental value. When previous generations build up something, it's sort of like passing down, is like the next generation gets an inheritance. You want to continue the legacy. Exactly. Because I know, listen, from a Jewish perspective, there's always a lot of guilt involved. The, the parent coming to you and saying, ah, oh, don't worry about me. It's okay. I'll just carry on. And then, you know, you go on and do all your nonsense and play your games. And then you're like, I'm not playing games. I work for PricewaterhouseCoopers. I, I, I'm an yeah. auditor. And then they say, oh, Mr. Fancy Schmancy with his big job. Let's see, you know, not good enough for my business. So ultimately you wind up like buckling and say, okay, okay, I'll come in and I'll help you, but I'll do things my way. And of course that, yeah. <laughs> that never works out. Exactly. Is it sometimes like that where you're, you get a, a little bit of a nudge from the parents saying, I've worked hard many, many years, Samir. It would be nice if you can come and help me a little bit. But I think also another thing that makes a difference in the family business is when you're growing up as a kid, you know, back in the 60s and 70s, it was all work from home, mm. right? Everybody had a home office because they're trying to build it. They're trying to save up money. It's like COVID. Like COVID, exactly. Yeah, so it's we, full circle. <laughs> we, yeah, we had a trial run back in the 60s and 70s. Who knew? <laughs> You know, growing up, I mean, when I remember when I was growing up, I'd come back from home from school and I always see dealers and brokers and clients coming into the house. They go into this one little room, you know, they'd be dealing, wheeling and dealing with my dad. So I've always been seen stones and I've seen the action and it sort of grows into you for a while. Well, it's interesting because on a previous podcast where I interviewed a guest about diamonds, he said something very similar, and I, I suppose I've never paused to actually consider it before he mentioned it, where this industry, the gemstone and certainly the jewelry industry, a lot of the time it's nurture versus nature. It's not that like we're automatically drawn towards the industry. It's actually a matter of because you're in the family, you're around it, you see it, you absorb it. And whether you know it or not, it's not quite that you're being groomed, but because you're absorbing it almost by osmosis, you, that is a matter of nurture. You're being brought into it because that's your environment. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, it's sort of like if somebody doesn't drink, you leave a glass of whiskey in them, it's only a matter of time that they're, they're going to drink it. How quickly this discussion went towards alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, once again, full circle like COVID. 
back, back <laughs> in the alcohol. So let's bring it back to gemstones for a second. So specifically rubies and sapphires. Today, yeah. give us an idea. Where are the best sources for rubies and sapphires worldwide? In terms of sourcing the actual material, there are various mining regions around the world, but the majority of them come from various areas in Africa and Thailand and Burma. So in Asia, you've got Thailand and Burma. And in Africa, can you be specific which countries yield the best rubies? So as of now in Africa, the best rubies would come out of Mozambique. In terms of sapphires, you have many regions. You have the Madagascar region and you have Tanzania as well. There's some beautiful sapphires that come out of Tanzania. How stable are these sources? When I say stable, I mean in terms of yield, consistency, quality. Let's talk about sapphires first. The sapphire supply chain, it's, it's an open market, right? So those who go in, they'll mine. Those workers will then uh, sell the rough to, to a trading company, you know, maybe based out of Nigeria or, you know, in Lagos or Arusha or Antananarivo in uh, Madagascar. And then those guys will then sell it on to the international market where they process the rough. So um, hold on. So you say uh, this is actually quite new to me. I've, I've not known this before. You're saying that actually there's a big trading market in Nigeria? In any of the countries that have mining, mm -hmm. there's always a small town where is a, there is a small marketplace where trading goes on. Uh, sapphires come out of Nigeria, they come out of Tanzania, they come out of Ethiopia. But all those places have small marketplaces for that. So you mean those emails I've been getting from somebody in Nigeria may have actually been le legitimately trying to sell me sapphires, not asking for my banking details and the fact that I may have won some special lottery. It's funny how you only get emails on sapphires and I only get emails on the gold. <laughs> yeah, there's always a prince who wants to do business with me, sure. <laughs> <laughs> it's, listen, royalty finds royalty. That's how it works. So, And in terms of pricing, what has happened in the last few years? Because I've noted, certainly in the fine quality, the prices seem to have dramatically increased for really fine goods. What have you seen yeah. happening with pricing on rubies and sapphires? Prices for, for nice things only moves in one direction, and that goes up. Uh, this has a lot to do with, obviously, it's common sense to say it's a supply and demand, but it's also the market, the economics of the market when business in 2020, 2021, as compared to 10 years ago, it's much more difficult. So the fashion trends change as well. And because of those fashion trend changes, that's why there's a pent-up demand in very specific areas of, of all the qualities available. So you often have people going, either going in one direction, they all want to buy nice stuff, or they want to go even cheaper, they want to go mass market. And given the amount of liquidity available, you know, low interest rates, very easy movement of money. You get a lot of people from outside the industry who want to enter the industry as well, which is quite surprising to me as a dealer. So given that kind of liquidity available, this, the prices would always be driven up, given that the supply has not increased. I've also noticed that 
even when now, let's say in the last year with the whole pandemic and everything, you'd think that actually demand would have gone down because people are at home or consumption is is less. But what you're seeing is actually an inverse movement in the pricing. Some of the prices, especially you look at rubies, the prices have gone up exponentially. So you're saying there's actually, obviously there's pockets within different sectors around the world. The demand in those pockets are actually demanding a lot more because it's almost to a degree seen as an alternative investment. You could say that, but that would only apply to, you could say, like the top 1% of the whole supply chain pyramid. Right. Um, But given, you know, going at the end of 2019 and then obviously all of 2020, people were just selling out of their inventory. Mm -hmm. I mean, I shouldn't say that this was a good thing for the industry that we had COVID in the traditional sense, but because a lot of other sectors which were actually competing with the jewelry sector for people's money, they could not operate. So you have luxury travel, cruises, uh, boutique holidays. That was a very, very big competitor for the jewelry industry. Alternative experiences, people spent their money in alternative ways. Exactly. So 2018 and 19, I remember from starting from 2000, it was the whole handbags and watches and brands. And that was the whole phase. And then from 2015 onwards, it went into experiences. You know, people wanted fantastic holidays. For example, the Four Seasons came out with their own private jet you can go on a 16-day holiday on the fourth season private jet unbelievable so all that basically did hurt the jewelry industry to a certain extent and then of course given the pandemic they couldn't spend all that money so then all that money came flowing back into the jewelry industry and also because 2020 there was practically no production there was no mining there were no auctions no manufacturing happening so people were selling out of whatever was available and it squeezed the supply chain in a way Exactly. You mentioned for a second handbags. We've actually specifically lost the sale in the last few years to a lady who decided she's buying an alligator skin Louis Vuitton handbag for 32,000 pounds. Yeah. Me, certainly as a man, that sounds like insanity. To somebody else, that sounds like a good deal. I don't, I'm not sure who that person is, but at the end of the day, I don't know. Maybe it's again, maybe it's because maybe I'm biased because I'm in the trade or maybe I have a different perspective, but I haven't quite come to terms with how people find that things like handbags are a good investment. I do understand that they're tradable. And like any tradable commodity, there is supply and demand and you're able to sell it on for a profit and everything. But somebody said, I I listened to an interview with an amazing guy called Roberto Kiyosaki. He's the guy who uh, wrote Rich Dad, Poor Dad, the whole series and everything. Incredible guy, incredible. I, I remember reading his books when I was a teenager. And he said he had actually divested completely from the stock market. His money was now all in mind things like silver, gold, possibly gemstones. And he said stocks and currencies are man's money. Gold, silver, and commodities are God's money. And I thought that was absolutely brilliant because things like gemstones, especially I'm talking about rare, the really fine, rare quality gemstones and gold and silver, they have always held value. They've always been known as precious commodities, things to revere, things to hold onto. So I question how people all of a sudden turn their heads away from what is known and has always been and will always be a store of value to the likes of handbags. Maybe I've not been 
paying attention, but it seems very odd that this is now where people see value. So it's sort of down to when I said earlier about experiences, like where the trends change. If you look at the 90s, like say, for example, back in Hong Kong, where I was born and brought up, average Chinese person, their target was to get a Rolex on their wrist, to get a Cartier in their pocket, and to have a Benz in the garage. This was their target. If they hit this, that means they've hit the big time. They've made it. This, this was the this was the mindset. As time went by, so it was all about status, right? Brand Ricky. Exactly, exactly. So with so much money being spent on on marketing, and they're finding you know all these advertising companies finding creative ways to gain uh, brand awareness using you know celebrity endorsements and road shows and things like that. And then you have uh, the wonderful world of social media. Given that whole wave and the whole growth and how everything trans so quickly, people went from a practical mindset that they wanted something physical to a sort of an identity mindset. So they wanted to be known for something. They want to be living the lifestyle rather than than focus on the long-term goal of sound judgment of investing and saving and and all the rest of that and buying correctly. So, so the average, so like I said, the average Chinese guy wanted to buy Rolex. For him, it was uh, hitting the target for his personal identity that he's made it. On 21st century, it's identity in in the eyes of others. Nobody knew. I don't think there was such a word called an influencer in the way we know it today. Certainly not. So, I'm, not I'm not sure always if if it's a good thing or a bad thing. I suppose it's what are they influencing towards? Is it towards exactly. positive change or is it towards? you know, getting more likes, uh, hopefully the, the, the former, not the latter. I mean, you have independent influencers giving the opinion or you have paid influencers having to push the product that they paid paid to, to push. Mm. So it's all about the psychology and influence of what the media has today. And that's what influences and changes the mindset of people. That's why you see so many jewelry companies, uh, so many jewelry businesses, stores, why do they have so much emphasis on branding? It can be somebody working out of the garage. Their brand persona is that of a big corporation, right? So it's all about branding. It's all about, again, identity. And public perception. It's all down exactly. So coming back to rubies and sapphires, we've yeah. seen in the past, certainly in the diamond industry, you had some very big players and certainly some controlling players. At one point, the Beers was probably the most influential and the most controlling company within the diamond sector. Today, they have big competition. They still are very significant, but yeah. they have some major competition. Within the ruby and sapphire trade, are there any such big players that are able to influence the market or is it a completely freely traded commodity, freely traded gemstones within the market that it's purely down to supply and demand and not somebody pushing or influencing the price? Again, it's all down to the supply. The supply of rubies and sapphires is significantly smaller to that of diamond. Rubies and sapphires are not, you know, there's a lot of variation. You have different, where it comes from, different origins, different qualities. Uh, some are treated, some are not treated. Origins have a big influence on the price. So, But are there dominant no, players who are influencing the movement in, and the sales? Either, if you look at it as an industry, you cannot say that there's only one person commanding the price, that who's setting the standard. But there are, 
a few individuals or two or three companies where they are sort of controlling a significant amount of supply in that area, mm-hmm. I would not compare them to somebody like Dubias in the traditional sense. So in what but way where? are they different? Okay, so Dubias is a corporation. They have public money, they're, they're a consortium, and they have the mining and they can control everything. Whereas an individual dealer in, in Thailand or in Geneva or London, they can accumulate a handful of stones as a collection. Okay, so let me put it into perspective about uh, supply. If you were to ask for 100 pieces of one carat DIF, the perfect cut, GIA certified, if you were to put that demand out in the market, you could probably have a selection available within 48 hours. But nice. if you, for Ruby or Sapphire, if you try to do it the same way where I want a one carat perfectly cut pigeon blood certified Ruby, a uh, hundred pieces matching, it's impossible. Well, this is something I've said to people and I've preached for years is that with colored gemstones as a whole, it really comes down to rarity. You know, if you find something truly special, it's because mother nature has deemed it so. They've deemed it as one in an exponential number that just so happens to be the perfect shade, the perfect clarity, the perfect... I mean, look, actually in diamonds, it can be very similar. But like you say, there's much less abundance in the in the gemstone market. And to yeah. try and match and to try and find 100 stones that are of equal parity in terms of color, clarity, cut, everything matching, it's almost an impossibility, which I guess is also part of the major factor of pricing. Because yes. when you do get something matching, again, it's exponential financial numbers, probably you have to have, have like a Stephen Hawking brain to work out the percentages of, of it happening. It's minute. So people need to understand that certainly in colors, the ability to create sets and certainly any sort of matching is exponentially more difficult. It's not off an assembly line. It's not one of so many. It's literally one of very, very few. Exactly. Like you said, each stone in its own right is a one of a kind. Yeah, absolutely. You now, I've got a guy who does my setting work. He sets the gems into the jewelry. And, you know, he's an older gentleman. And he said, you know, when he was being educated in the world of gems, you know, different things to set. For him, a sapphire was blue and a ruby was red. And pretty much every other color was kind of almost like nondescript. It fell into a sort of arbitrary category. But today, you know, education has come a long way. There's a lot more classifications and so on. There's a lot more variety, certainly in, in sapphires. Can you tell us what it's some of the more popular colors that have come in the last few years? Where is the demand for interesting and colorful uh, sapphires and possibly even rubies? Are all rubies red or do they have variations? Okay, so let's talk about sapphires. Sapphires, you could get every color possible under the sun. You can get, obviously, your traditional blue sapphires, then you have yellow sapphires, pink sapphires, green sapphires, purple, teal. Every color possible is available in uh, sapphire. Right. Whereas uh, rubies, you could get the deepest, like, crimson red uh, rubies, and it goes down to a very intense pink color, which is sort of the borderline for well, they would classify the corundum, whether you call it ruby or pink sapphire. It has to be just over the border of pink with a tinge of red to be classified a ruby. Exactly. Right. Okay. Talking of rubies, let's discuss the elephant in the room. And we're not referring to me this time. Um <laughs> 
let's talk about Burma or as it's called today, Myanmar. Still to my mind, and I think to many people's mind, best source of rubies. But obviously there's a lot of political turmoil. It's coming to light that there's some serious problems going on in that country, especially in yeah. the way people are being treated and minorities and all the rest of it. It's definitely having an influence on demand. I see that certain companies and certainly I think America as a whole now is banning any sort of importation of rubies from Myanmar. Do you see that demand has waned for Burmese rubies or are people still turning a blind eye and saying, listen, for my money, I just want the best. I don't care where it comes from. I don't care what the conditions are. I just want the best. I see political landscape today has much less of an impact on where the stones come from and how they're traded as compared to 10-15 years ago. If you remember before, they had uh, the Jade uh, Sanction Act in the US, I think it was around 2006, which they banned all products from Burma, uh, from Myanmar, which included uh, rubies and, and jade and uh, blue sapphires as well. But in today's market, given that what's happened in Burma, I have not seen or felt or heard any impact that it's had on the existing trade. Obviously, you have a lot of larger companies who have corporate social responsibility as part of their, their agenda. They would not promote Burmese uh, products. But on a wider industry level, it has not had any impact. Well, People still want what they want. Just to be clear, does the fact that a stone comes from Burma, does that really mean that it's a conflict stone? Within the diamond industry, you have something called the Kimberley process. And the Kimberley process process was brought in to kind of clean up the act of all the major miners and the players within the game to make sure that not only is it not coming from conflict, but essentially it also, sorry, not a lot, I would say a, a portion of the diamond trade and, and mining was going to also arm certain militia and buy arms. So it's not just the mining itself, but also the funds that were going from that, what was being done with them. So the fact that a ruby or a sapphire, because some of the best sapphires in the world come from Burma, the fact that they're from Burma, does that naturally mean that they're conflict stones? Is it the country or the militia controlling these mines? Or is it your small, still moms and pops, small gemstone operators, uh, artisanal miners mining for these products and just trying to make a living? So by boycotting it, are we really punishing the regime or are we punishing the small artisanal Miner. I would say we would we are punishing the smaller artisanal miner because the jewelry industry as a whole is a very I wouldn't call it an industry in the traditional sense, right? It's a very artisanal, hands-on, you know, personal experience sort of business, uh, sort of career. To to sanction precious metals and precious stones uh, from that country, it will not have any effect on the militia or the government, whoever's involved in the negative way. The only people who get affected are, like you said, artisanal miners, you know, smaller families who are working. They will. I know a lot of dealers in Burma who actually have people sorting rough for them, uh, they actually work on a daily basis. So they go in the morning, buy something, 
they come back and they need to flip it because they need money to live. So, so now these sanctions are literally impacting people's ability to just make a living and feed their families. Yeah, in in the broad sense, yes, that's as far as I can see it. Now, obviously, given the nature of this industry, because it's a valuable commodity, uh, obviously there are uh, people higher up the ladder who are involved in this industry, and obviously they don't want to feed them. But I would say that doing having these sanctions would actually not affect them in any way because they're so high up they probably have their fingers in so many different pies the ruby and the or the gemstone industry is probably one of the smallest part of it exactly right definitely food for thought in terms of anybody who wants to do good, having a clear thought process. So whenever rubies and sapphires are mentioned, people always rave about how hard they are, you know, second to diamond and so on. Sometimes, unfortunately, I see some people taking that as a personal challenge to see how badly they, they can damage it when they return it to us and they say, oh, I thought that you said it was hard. I said, I didn't say you could go off-roading with them. So how hard, I mean, in terms of durability and hard wearing how hard are these gemstones rubies and sapphires because they're both corundum so pretty much it's the same material they both have the same sort of properties yeah i mean when you look at the the hardness scale oh wow this is like school flashback i mean you oh, have gemstones uh, 101 for for anybody who's listening exactly so you obviously have 10 which is the hardest uh, you have diamonds which is a 10 on the most scale uh you have corundum which is rubies and sapphires at nine obviously in terms of hardness you know, you could say the second in line, uh, but it's the the chemical properties and the the way that the stones are formed. You could you could hit a, a a ruby or a sapphire in a certain way, where in one direction it would not affect the stone, but with the same force, if you hit it from another direction, you could probably hit the stone, crack the stone, or even split it in two. Right, because at the end of the day, this is still a crystal type structure, and it has points of weakness. And it can, it, as you say, it can chip, it can break, it can crack. So just because something is hard, I've even heard it from jewelers in the trade that almost seem to think that I know, as you say, it's a nine out of 10 on the hardness scale. Yeah. Yeah, but hardness in terms of what is hardness in terms of gemstones. It's not like titanium where you can smash it with a hammer and you, it will come out fine. Exactly. These things I, are still I, precious gems and we should still take care of them. I could, I could punch you in the arm and prick you with a pin. Which one would hurt more? Yeah, I think that's a personal challenge. Anybody who's listening, I now have witnesses. You've threatened me and uh, yeah, sanctions will soon be imposed. <laughs> Let's talk investment gems. In the last few years, I've certainly noticed a huge trend in amongst the auction houses that probably after some of the biggest and rarest diamonds, mostly very large diamonds, sort of 50 carat plus or 100 carat plus or yeah. very sort of rare colors. Second to that, I've definitely seen a big trend amongst fine and rare colored gemstones being sold for literally millions, millions of dollars. Amongst them also rubies, sapphires, fires, emeralds, some other gemstones. So what would you say to people who are looking at alternative investments? Are rubies and sapphires good investment gemstones? Yeah, absolutely. If, you, if you've seen throughout the years with the auction houses like Sotheby's, uh, Christie's, Bonhams and Butterfields, they always have every auction a significant uh, lot up for sale. And more often than not, I see it's a beautiful ruby. It's, uh, you know, 
know, beautiful uh, sapphire, even uh, some stunning emeralds as well. I've seen that. Again, these are all natural products. And, you know, nature only comes out with so many. And there's so many people who always want the best things. And often what you find in the auctions and even amongst uh, traders as well on a B2B level, when they've come up with a beautiful stone for sale, it's not necessary that it's just come out of the mine. You know, these, these stones have changed hands all coming down throughout the years. So what does that tell you? If a same stone has changed hands over and over again, over and over again, where people have obviously paid more and more money. So there's nothing new. Hence, scarcity. Hence, it's a good investment. Because it remains rare. And the fact, as you say, that it has changed hands and certainly nothing new has come up to rival it, which just shows how rare it really is. So like you say, exactly. it, and the, the rarer the commodity, the more sought after it is, the higher the, the value goes. Yeah, if you were to compare scarcity-wise, uh, if you were to compare a diamond and, you know, if you look at the four Cs, yeah. if you were to compare a diamond and colored stone. Okay, so for example, recently, there's a 100-carat diamond up for auction in uh, Sotheby's, I believe. Mm -hmm. How many... Okay, so let's go back a little bit. How many 50 carat plus, you know, DIF type 2As have we seen go go under the hammer? Probably not that many. Okay, not that many. Not but you could name a few. Okay, say five maybe? Seven? Yeah, probably something like that. A handful or two. A handful or two. Okay. Now, when was, do you remember when was the last time you saw a 50 carat sapphire when you compare the same four Cs? Beautiful color, 50 carat plus, excellent clarity, uh, natural, no treatment nothing how many of those have come gone under the hand other than the one you tried to sell me <laughs> none <laughs> <laughs> Man, there you go. <laughs> yeah, no, you're right. They don't exist. Well, they do exist, but in such finite quantities that it certainly that it proves the point. So if I'm a consumer, let's say I'm the average consumer out there and I want to go out and I want to buy a really good sapphire or ruby, what are yeah. the main points of focus I should be looking out for? What are the questions I should be asking? As a consumer, when it comes to gemstones, there is no perfect stone. There's no ideal stone. It's all down. You're killing my business here, Samir. <laughs> it's all it's all down to the it's all down to what the person likes. No, but there are certain criteria, like you mentioned, the four C's, which are the you know the color, the cut, the clarity, and the carrot. There's certain criteria that one should be looking out for. Certainly, I would say for me, what I always try and advise my customers is beyond the textbook definition of looking at all the the four C's and the basics of a gemstone. One yeah. should, and I think this holds probably the greatest truth within colored gemstones over and above the color is the the life within the gemstone the gemstone yeah. needs to speak to you for me yes. that's i always try and emphasize that when advising a customer on what to look out for uh, yes it comes down to personal taste it comes down to what that person likes and it can be very subjective but overall i think one should look at the life of the gemstone it needs to speak to you it needs to if it's faceted so well and got such a beautiful hue it certainly should stand out as what you should be striving for oh absolutely i mean if, if you're going to have a stone on your finger and you want to make a statement there is no other way I, me personally i always even when i'm buying for my own inventory uh, like you i always put life the luster the brilliance before everything else the stone can have some inclusions uh it can have some uh, 
bands here and there and it's all natural right it's all part of mother nature yeah i remember a few years ago i actually had an exhibition a jeweler one of our customers actually brought me a piece that they had bought on auction or secondhand or something and they wanted me to try and value it for them and they were quite shocked when i said to them it's worthless and they like looked at me it was a natural gemstone and they were like how can you say it's worthless? This is such and such gemstone. Surely it has a value. And I explained to them that, yes, certainly, technically, it is a gemstone. And technically, it does hold a certain value that's obvious. But to me, because it didn't tick all the boxes of being cut so well, it was really poorly cut. The life was almost non-existent and it had some color, but nothing amazing. To me, that it was worthless because I wouldn't invest a single cent in such a product. For me, I think most people will appreciate you work very hard for your money if you're going to spend it on something get something good something really good meeting the definition of a gemstone doesn't mean that it holds great worth or or should be bought exactly and it is this philosophy that a lot of consumers have started understanding in the past couple of years which is what's led to a very high pent-up demand for very nice fine uh, desirable gemstone because one it's obviously the consumer two it's a it's a great store of value, right? Which is something you can pass down from generation to generation. So that, that's the point. We always talk about heirloom gems, you know, gems and jewelry for generations. You want to be able to buy something beautiful, but also be able to pass that down. I think jewelry and gemstones are a very emotive product, unlike anything else. You don't purchase it just for the now, you purchase it for the future so that future generations can enjoy it. You've mentioned also, while we we're discussing several times, you've spoken about stones being natural. Today, there's a big play towards there are lab created gemstones uh, one could call them synthetic gemstones although synthetic makes it sound fake in a way when I say synthetic I mean from sort of a scientific technical perspective that one has synthesized the gemstone but re, let's say re-engineered it and, and recreated it in a lab setting rather than from the ground in mother nature call it man-made yeah we, or you could call it man-made although that doesn't sound so great when when trying to sell it to the consumer what do you first of all have you seen any sort of demand certainly within the diamond side there's a big move towards lab created diamonds do you see demand for lab created gemstones or is there a hesitation to approach such gemstones i have in my 23 year career i have seen quite a few companies doing created gemstones lab created stones using various different techniques to try and uh, synthesize to try and simulate its natural counterpart Mm -hmm. but until today there has not been a single product which could actually replace a natural gemstone what do you mean by replace okay why do people buy uh, why is there a pent-up demand for say a lab created diamond if you look at a diamond from afar they both look the same right Mm -hmm. okay but obviously people know that a lab created diamond there is no store of value if you want to buy something which has some value as an asset, then you have to go for a natural gemstone. If you're going for something where sort of like buying a handbag where something costs 36,000 pounds and something costs 3,600 pounds, it looks the same from afar. Both have the same purpose, but there's still something about the 36,000 pounds you spend. It's the quality it lasts longer. It also has a value in the future, right? You will not get that with a with a created gemstone. Just for the record, neither the thirty six thousand nor the thirty six hundred pound handbag will be on offer to my wife anytime soon. <laughs> 
So don't put any, if she's listening to this, don't get any ideas. So <laughs> I don't want to go on too long about it, but I go back to several years ago. Actually, it was round about the same time you and I were exhibiting in Hong Kong together. I went for a walk upstairs in the exhibition hall to the gemstone hall. And there was a booth which had some incredible looking gemstone, but something about the whole thing was off because when I approached and I looked at the gemstones, which looked unbelievable at first glance, and you looked at the look of the booth and where they were positioned, because for those who don't know, certainly within the international exhibitions, the organizers try and group the different types of exhibitors within qualities and within country sector and so on. So this booth, certainly selling the type of quality that was perceived, stood out like a sore thumb at being in the wrong place. And it looked like some of the most beautiful sapphires and rubies and tanzanite, which I absolutely loved. That caught my eye first. And I started speaking to the gentleman who was behind the booth. And I said, is this tanzanite? That was the first thing I asked. And he said, no, it's Tanzanian. So I said, no, yes, I understand it's Tanzanian. It's from Tanzania, but is it tanzanite? And he said, no, you, not Tanzanian as in I-A-N, Tanzanian as in I-O-N. So I said, sorry, forgive my ignorance. What is that? So he says, it's a lab created Tanzanite. And to be fair, it was the first time I had ever heard of such a thing. So then my eye started, you know, shooting left and right. And I'm looking and I'm seeing rubies and sapphires. And I'm saying, hold on a second, are these lab created? And he said, yes, we actually do create these we create them in thailand in bangkok and i said can i have a look and he took some out and i had a look and i have to say certainly without sending it to a laboratory or anything like that and obviously being quite experienced and looking at gemstones it was very difficult to tell the difference and at some point what actually scared me was not how close these variants are on the real thing in terms of first glance but when he asked for my business card and I sort of out of courtesy handed him a business card, he looked at it and he said, ah, you're from the UK. I said, yes. And he says, ah, we've sold quite a few of these into the UK. And that for me actually was the scariest part because I have never, ever seen in the trade anybody disclose that they are selling lab created tanzanite. And certainly I haven't seen anybody disclose lab created sapphires and rubies which means actually there's a very scary element out there that unless you're dealing with somebody very reputable who will say this is a lab created and therefore that this is why the price is what it is, people could fall prey to some very unscrupulous dealers out there. Yeah, that's a, that's a very, very big problem that even you know on a B2B level we face is when people uh, approach us and trying to sell us uh, gemstones. Uh, we always, always buy from known dealers, or at least people who have been referred to us by someone we trust. And if not, the worst case scenario is just get it tested before putting the money down. Yeah, That's why you see a lot of companies nowadays, they, they sell a certified stone that it's been tested or at least bought from a reliable source and so on and so on. So it's sort of like a guarantee or warranty certificate, yeah. if you will. Well, I say this to customers all the time. I think one thing that is incredible about our industry is the level of trust that it applied, which almost I don't think exists in almost any other trade, is that reputation and trust is it's almost as valuable, if not more valuable than the commodity that you're trading. And the fact that somebody is bringing forth a gemstone, which is high quality, is not just because 
he happens to be smart in his procurement policies, but the fact that he has worked on a level of trust, his sources are working on a level of trust. There's a lot of backstory of reputation, trust, and the right morals going into bringing that product to market, which I think is an incredible thing, especially for consumers, is that if they're going to somebody reputable to buy, it's not just that person who's reputable, it's his entire supply chain that has applied a high standard to bringing that product forth. I don't know all that many industries that regardless of how many hands that product changes in, that that amount of reputation and trust goes into bringing that product to market. I think it's incredible. Yeah, I think our industry, probably one of the biggest, I think the most important prerequisite is many people say that, oh, it's your knowledge of gemstones or it's your ability to sell or whatever. I think the most, the most important requirement in this industry is integrity. Without a doubt. And I think once you compromise that integrity, it's not just the ultimately the consumer that will mistrust you, but actually there is a judge and a jury within the industry. I think the, the, almost the entire industry turns its back on you. So you have to maintain those high levels, those high standards within your reputation and your practices. Uh, absolutely. I mean, I've, in my experience, sticking to our company and say family's philosophy in business and in life, I've actually, you know, as being the primary sales in, in, in the company, I've lost a lot of business sticking to my philosophies, but the same people end up coming back to me in the long run. And then they stick with me for life. I probably, out of our customer base, I would say I have a good 20 or 30% of our customer base is actually, we've been dealing with their family since the previous generation. Wow. Well, my father dealt with their father and now the next generation has come in and now the kids are doing business together. It's an incredible amount of trust. Now, finally, from one born negotiator to another, do you think that rarity and quality should be discounted? And before you answer, we are going to ask for a discount. So just, (laughs) (laughs) I think that goes without saying. (laughs) But as a a philosophy, I mean, obviously within the trade, there's always a bit of give and take, and that's the way it goes. You, You always try and get the best price, the best value, not only for yourself, but also for your consumer. But do you think that quality and rarity as a whole should be discounted? Not at all. In fact, when it comes down to quality and rarity, it's actually a premium. It's like I said before, beautiful, perfect stones which come, which Mother Nature has given us. They are being passed around and handed down from generation to generation or passed passed from dealer to dealer. There's nothing new. Mm. Maybe out of a couple of hundred kilos, you might find one nice, fine gemstone. And to get that couple of hundred kilos of gems, you have to go through a few thousand tons of rubbish. Yeah. To put into perspective how rare that perfect stone can be. Absolutely. But we're still going to ask you for a discount. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you wish to ask him for an Indian guy for a discount. We're going to be here all night. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> i got nothing else to do. This is locked up. <laughs> we can go. Samir, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on. I have to say goodbye now, but I know that right after this, we'll have endless amounts of WhatsApps with more 
business related material going back and forth. But thank you once again for giving us your time and giving us your knowledge of the gemstone industry and hope to have you on again because there's an infinite amount of information to discuss. And much like me, I hope one day your dad finally makes the decision that bringing you into the business was the right decision and that he's actually <laughs> proud of you. I don't know if that's possible, but we have to live in hope. He knows it is, but he's not going to tell me that. <laughs> no, no, no. Don't fish for compliments. You, you, Keep me on my toes. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Well, thank you again and hope to speak to you soon. Thank you, Errol. Best of luck and hope to speak to you again soon. Great. Thank you. Take care. I'd like to thank you all for tuning in again and listening to my podcast. If you found it interesting and entertaining, Please do follow me for future episodes and share this podcast with friends, family and colleagues. Please also leave comments or questions if you have one and I'll do my best to answer or perhaps even to make a future episode out of it. Do your best to keep it clean. This has been Gems and Jokes with Ariel Tivon. Have an awesome day.